The following episode contains recreated scenes based on FBI investigative reports, wiretaps, and suspect interviews. I'm Charlton Heston. In the movies, I usually play a hero, but I know that real-life heroes are ordinary people who do extraordinary things for their fellow man. If you have any information about an act of terrorism, you can be a hero by saving innocent lives. Are you the next hero? It's the end of January, 1995. On a flight to Bangkok, a young South African man flips through a Time magazine. He stops on a black and white photo. It's for an article about America's most wanted terrorist, Ramsey Youssef. The South African recognizes this man as he reads about the $2 million bounty on Ramsey's head. Ramsey bought him the first-class ticket for this flight to Bangkok and he gave him two suitcases filled with toy police cars and baby dolls stuffed with gun cotton and nitroglycerin. After landing at Bangkok International Airport, the young South African heads for the Delta Airlines counter to check the bags in for a flight to America. Casio watches have been rewired to trigger the bombs midair. An hour later, passengers board a Delta Jumbo jet. A flight attendant secures the cabin door. On behalf of the entire Delta family, we're honored to be a part of your journey. The engines rev as the cabin lurches forward. The wheels lift off the tarmac, and the plane rises and rises until it disappears into the clear blue sky. But the deadly suitcases are not on board. The South African has locked himself in a stall in the men's room, and he's pouring the nitroglycerin down the sink. I'm Mark Smerling, and you're listening to Operation Trade Bomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. Yosef placed a bomb aboard Philippine Airlines Flight 434, bound for Tokyo, Japan, which detonated while the aircraft was in flight, causing the death of one passenger. I I think the terrorist did his homework, because if that bomb exploded right on top of the center fuel tank, the whole plane would have exploded. The FBI flooded the Middle East with thousands of these matchbooks, written in Arabic, offering a $2 million reward for Yosef's arrest. Somewhere deep in the computer, it showed various flight schedules for various flights. The Pajinka plot was a serious plot. We got to pay attention. We got we got to find the guy. My name is Jeff Reiner. I was assigned as a special agent to the regional security officer at the American Embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan. I had been to a lot of countries around the world. I'd never been to Pakistan. The first night I was there, after going through a little bit of shock at the airport for my family, we get to the embassy, we get into our quarters, our apartment. Everybody gets gets into bed and goes to sleep. Phone rings. It's uh, Bill, my partner there. He tells me you've got to walk in, and it's a good good time to start. My name's Bill Miller. Back in the 90s, I was a special agent with the Diplomatic Security Service. 
We assisted the FBI in their pursuit of Ramzi Yusuf. I interviewed over 200 walk-ins during the, the time period that I was in Pakistan on Ramzi Yusuf alone, uh, just trying to find that, that nugget of, of gold, someone who actually had information. You know, everyone who walks into the embassy and says, I know where Ramzi Yusuf is, most of them just were nonsensical. And it was just, I think, hey, I'm bored today. Let's go see if the Americans will give me $2 million. So get dressed, go up to the uh, room that we used to interview walk-ins. Bill walks him in. I'm sitting there waiting with notepad in hand. And he tells us that he has information for us, but he's afraid to divulge it because he's convinced that ISI, which is the Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, has planted something in his head. Uh, that was my first walk-in as a DS agent. It's been three years since a bomb exploded beneath the World Trade Center, and one year since Ramzi Yusuf fled the Philippines after putting a bomb on a plane. American intelligence suspects that Ramsey is somewhere in Pakistan, plotting new attacks against the United States. It's Agent Miller and Agent Reiner's job to find him. It's February in Pakistan. It was midday. I got a call from the Marine security guard saying that there was an embassy employee who was calling because she noticed a man standing outside her front door. He wanted to talk to somebody at the American embassy. Miller was at the American club with his boss when he got the call. I thought, okay, great, we've got another one of those 200 walk-ins that just popped up and I'm having breakfast. But at the same time, you gotta do it. Jeff and I saddled up and, and off we went. Reiner and Miller jumped into a black Suburban for the short ride to the American Embassy compound. It's early, so the shops are just opening. The market's just starting to buzz with activity. They drive through the compound gate and pass homes hidden behind concrete walls and barbed wire. They make their way to the front door of the embassy employee who'd called to report a man standing outside her house. Maybe... 22, 25 years old, uh, thin, dark-haired, and um, obviously agitated, very, very agitated. It's the young South African that Ramsey Youssef sent to Bangkok to blow up a plane. He had a brown paper bag with what looked like a magazine rolled up inside of it. And there was a small photograph of Ramsey there. And uh, the source started talking about Ramsey Youssef. And... He kept saying, I know this man, I know this man, I know this man. He's here, he's here, he's here. So Jeff began to speak with him. Uh, he said, I just came from Bangkok, and we were there to, to bomb an American airline. He had second thoughts, or peed in his pants. You can put it either way. And we said, well, how do you know he was bombing airlines? He said, well, because I watched him put the information on his laptop. And in 1994, very few people had laptops. So Jeff immediately said, laptop, you're just lying to us. I said, well, stop. Ramsey was in the Philippines. The guest house that he was staying in caught fire. And so as he ran, 
he left his laptop there. So I knew, because I had been read onto the program, that at the time he had left that laptop there. Very, very few people knew that. And as he described the laptop, it was exactly what had been recovered in the Philippines. What the source had told us was that they made the explosives in Pakistan and took them to Bangkok. As he's telling the date and he's telling the time of when they traveled, Jeff and I are looking at one another saying, your wife just went there. My wife had been medevaced to Bangkok. She was pregnant with our, our younger daughter. And so she had to have some medical tests carried out that couldn't be carried out in Islamabad. That was the same flight that the source was on, and the source had all of those explosives with him. Any static electricity, anything at all, and something could have happened. I got chill bumps thinking about it again. At that moment, it became personal. So we both made a decision to put him in the back of um, our uh, armored Suburban that we drove around town in and uh, take him back to the embassy. The regional security office is responsible for all of the guards at the front gate and around the compound, both inside and out. So they work for us, but you can only control so much. You've also got to believe that some of the people that are working there that we pay also get a separate uh, paycheck. So, you know, it was really in everybody's best interest to hide him from being spotted as, uh, as we drove through the front gate. I sat in the back seat, basically with my feet on top of him. Our cars stop at the front gate. They run the mirrors around underneath, and they, they'll try to look in the engine compartment and so on. The local guards dropped the gate and let us in. We drove around to the side of the embassy and, and brought him into one of the small meeting rooms that we had, and then began to debrief him. We sat down with, with him over a pretty extensive period of time that day and got a lot more information. But he was also telling us that Yusuf was in Islamabad. They were still communicating back and forth over what to do next. And then once it was decided by those in charge that would be enough for the day, we gave him a, uh, a cell phone to call us. So we covered him up with a blanket, took him out to a quiet section of town and let him go. Opened the doors and he walked away. Pakistan was a difficult place for law enforcement to operate, but the Pakistanis were the only ones who could arrest Ramzi Yusuf. If this was going to be a good arrest and this was going to be well done later in court, we had to have our Pakistani interlocutors so Agent Miller reached out to someone he trusted, and hopefully someone who could help arrest America's most wanted man. I am Rahman Malik, and I've done the top investigations in the country. At the time, Rahman Malik was head of the Federal Investigation Agency, Pakistan's version of the FBI. He was an excellent partner with us. 
But Raman was at odds with a number of people as a result of his affiliation with us. I think chief amongst those in the Pakistani government would be the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence, which had been a part of the growth of al-Qaeda. It wasn't in their interest to uh, participate in doing the investigation on Ramzi Yusuf. Al-Qaeda was born from the Mujahideen, freedom fighters who had come to Afghanistan to defeat the Soviets. And the United States had worked closely with the ISI to support the Mujahideen. But after the Soviets left, the U.S. pulled that support. That's when Rahman Malik witnessed a change. Basically what I saw, all these Mujahideens were feeling actually left over and they had no more sympathy for Americans, to be very honest. They thought that they were left high and dry. And we became the biggest victim in Pakistan. Violence in Afghanistan spilled over into Pakistan. And there were members of the ISI who blamed the United States. But not Malik. He was aligned with Pakistan's Western-leaning Prime Minister, Benazir Bhutto. That's the time when I started hunting Yusuf Ramsey. I'm using the word hunting, because at that time, we had realized that these are the real terrorists. They are creating trouble for us. And they were actually involved in criminal activities. Then one day, Malik got a call from Agent Bill Miller. He knew where to find Ramsey Youssef. We had a meeting with the whole team, which was from U.S., and then, of course, uh, Bill. So they have that window of opportunity to meet with Benazir Bhutto. So they go to the prime minister's residence, and they meet with her and lay out what's going on. She immediately turns to Raman Malik, who was in the meeting as well, says, Raman, make sure you're helping everyone. I said, my boys will be there watching you, and let's take him today. It's early in the morning, and the source calls, I got to talk to you now. He's, you know, upset. It's, uh, you know, it's obvious that there's something going on. Finally, he says, look, he's coming here. He's going to meet me here. So he gave us the location. It was the Sukasa guest house. The Sukasa guest house is on a dead-end street. It's a traditional Pakistani home in an upper-class neighborhood, like a, a bed and breakfast here in the U.S. It was Ramadan. It was a crystal clear blue sky. It was very early morning. People are, are, they had just finished cooking their breakfast. As all good mornings, it's kind of cool, uh, crisp. It's February. We don't know for a fact that Ramsey's in that room. We just know that our source is telling us he's going to be in that room. So Jeff gave him a, a ball cap and told him, look, when you go in, we're going to be nearby. And when you come out, take the cap off. If he's there, run your hands through your hair, and we'll take it from there. If you come out and you leave the cap on, just keep walking to your apartment, and we'll get back in touch with you. A motorcade pulls up of about four or five cars, which in and of itself was kind of disturbing because if he's looking out the window, he's going to see this and flee. The ISI inserted themselves. And you don't know who now not to trust. Before I know it, 
there are dozens of folks that didn't belong blanketing the square and surrounding all the buildings. I said, you know, this is kind of messed up. We can't allow these guys to walk back and forth and be so obvious for much longer. And I said, this is not going to work. we we got to go do this now. At the same time, the source came out of the guest house, lifted the ball cap off, ran his fingers through his hair, put his cap on, and walked away. So we knew we had to go. My service pistol was in my hand. I go in through the front door, and I will never forget this. I looked over at the desk clerk, and he just looked at me with his eyes about the size of a silver dollar, wide open, and just pointed upstairs. So I started to go up the stairs, and I hear a voice in the Pakistani dialect telling me to hold there for a moment. You gotta remember, violence is his thing. Every reason to believe he had explosives in his room. In fact, I could have I could have bet on it. I paused for maybe five seconds. We blew into the room very quickly. The door had been broken down by the force of the body of the first ISI guy. And uh, Ramsey was lying on the bed in a, a shower kameez and uh, appeared to be asleep. They grabbed him and threw him up against the wall. We found a radio-controlled police car as well as a baby doll, a female baby doll. Uh, I saw numerous electronic diodes and wires and batteries. Ramsey was completely compliant. He didn't fight, kept his eyes closed, his head down, let them, you know, roughly handle him as they put him up. Then they slowly turned him around. When they pulled him away from the, the wall, they'd immediately put a scarf around his face. So I snapped my fingers to get the attention of the ISI agent who was with him, and, and I placed my hand on my face to signify, you know, please show me his face, lift his head up. They took the scarf off, and you see the scarf then resting around his neck, and his eyes had just opened. And as he lifted his head up, I said, what's up, Ramsey? And when I did, his eyes opened, and you could see the tears in his eyes. And I think he realized at that moment in time, it was different. Now, the Americans are here. His knees went out from under him. His eyes welled up with tears. Uh, he, he couldn't handle himself. He knew his, uh, he was cooked. So as soon as we had Ramsey, we went into a Suzuki Kyber. There were two men in the front, four of us in the back. Had an ISI guy on each side, me in the middle, and Ramsey in my lap. So off we go to the ISI safe house. Inside, Ramsey had his hands shackled behind him. And at that time, I think the wanted poster had something like 21 names uh, that it was thought that Ramsey would go by. And so one of our FBI colleagues looked at him and he said, so what's your name? Ramsey was a smart aleck. He was a smart ass. He said, so what day is it? That was his reply. You know, which day is it? I'll give you a different name. So the captain of the ISI walked up to him, put the swagger stick on his chest and tapped him a few times. He said, they will go home tonight, but I'll stay with you. That was the last smart-ass thing he said.
Now, Agent Miller has an even more complicated problem to solve, getting Ramzi Youssef out of Pakistan and back to the United States. It was being said that he was a Pakistani citizen. And so how could you possibly give over a Pakistani citizen to the U.S. government? So once again, he called Rahman Malik for help. It was Saturday. And uh, the courts are normally closed here on Sunday. Only one magistrate is there who's, according to law, when you deport or you extradite somebody, so he has to give a statement before a magistrate. He did give the statement to a magistrate, and magistrate allowed the extradition that let him go. We all went out to Islamabad International Airport and met the Pakistani authorities on a deserted military tarmac waiting for the U.S. plane to arrive. It was supposed to have happened before daybreak, so we could sort of scoot him out of there very quietly. Well, the flight was delayed by a couple of hours, so it landed just at the beginning of daybreak. You know, nerves are a little frayed at this point. We're out there sort of like sitting ducks. And I'll never forget somebody coming out of nowhere on a bicycle. Just a Pakistani farmer. And it scared the crap out of me. So the plane lands, taxis up to near where we are. A um, group of tactical agents, FBI agents, got off the plane, surrounded the car. Ramsey was actually wearing a pair of gray slacks, a blue blazer, a rep stripe tie, a uh, blue button-down shirt, and uh, a pair of penny loafers. I know that because I bought them. Uh, Ramsey refused to answer questions for us because he said, you're going to trot me out in front of the cameras and you're going to tell everyone what an animal I am, how ignorant I am. And he was really worried about being portrayed as stupid. He said, no, I'll talk to you, but I want to be presented in something that's respectable. I said, what do you want? I I want a suit and tie. That same scarf that they had put around his head at the guest house was now around his head again. I I looked in the car to make sure it was Yusuf. It was, because they unwrapped his head for me. They needed to uh, take his Pakistani handcuffs off. And so uh, I had my handcuffs on me. Uh, They took my handcuffs, put them on Yusuf. He walks up the ramp on the plane he went, and uh, off he flew back to New York. Last time I saw Ramsey, it's the last time I saw my handcuffs, too. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome Prime Minister Budo to the White House. I thanked the Prime Minister for working with us to capture Ramsey Yosef. In the arrest of uh, Ramsey, we believe we are on the high moral ground because we have acted according to Pakistan's own internal laws and according to international laws. Somewhere in the Ministry of Water and Electricity in Doha, Qatar, there's an empty desk. The man it belongs to still receives a regular paycheck but he rarely shows up for work. He's Ramsey Yusuf's uncle, and he was with Ramsey in the Philippines during the planning of Bojinka. 
His name is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Members of New York's Joint Terrorism Task Force call him KSM. In 1996, KSM takes his family to Afghanistan. He wants to talk to a wealthy Saudi businessman that he met there during the war. His name is Osama bin Laden, a venture capitalist of terror. KSM heads to the White Mountain region of Tora Bora, a barren Afghani mountain range once used as a base by the Mujahideen. Driving through the night, he stopped at multiple checkpoints by guards packing machine guns. He reaches bin Laden's camp as the sun rises. He ducks inside a simple clay hut. He tells bin Laden about his spectacular idea, his best one yet. It's an evolution of the World Trade Center bombing and the Bojinka plot. He's sure it will work, but he needs money. He calls it the planes operation. Next time on Operation Trade Bomb. We are also today unsealing a superseding indictment charging Khalid Sheikh Mohammed with participation in the plot. Frank and I would hear in the office that Bashir and Pellegrino are in another boondoggle, you know, going overseas, fighting the battle to try to catch KSM. What does that mean, disappear? They can't find the fucking guy? Are you kidding me? Where is he? Are you bullshitting me then? Are you bullshitting me now? I mean, how do you lose the guy? Operation Trade Bomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Truth Media in partnership with Brillstein Entertainment Partners. Zach Goldbaum is our senior producer. This episode of Operation Trade Bomb was produced by Kenny Kusiak, Alexa Burke, Michael May, Meher Ahmad, and Alessandro Santoro. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling. John Liebman is our executive producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Bridget Busa is our associate producer. Sound design is by Kenny Kusiak with help from Alexa Burke and Alessandro Santoro. George Draping Hicks did the mix. Music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Momentum by Kenny Kusiak. Production legal by Ryan Nord and Matthew Papa at the Nord Group. Legal review by Linda Steinman, Abigail Everdell, and Alison Cherie at Davis Wright Tremaine. Fact-checking by Dania Suleiman. The production would like to thank Nuha Musla, Amr Latif, Ruhan Ahmed, Letitia Naidu, Ahmed Fateha, Hiba Afifi, Juan Bernardo Custodio, and Evan Pishan. Please listen and follow on Apple Podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to write a review. 